Father, it is good to hear our Savior praying. What a gift this chapter is to us. For we know the Savior prayed. How could He not commune with His Father in heaven? But not only do we understand that logically, the Scriptures tell us repeatedly that He prayed. And we have some instances of brief utterances of prayer that He offered. But this chapter is such a rich blessing for it is our Savior's extended prayer on our behalf. It is a prayer that we know that He not only prayed that day, but a prayer that is permanently, eternally on His heart for us. And so we come to this passage not just seeking exhortation for how we might pray, though that is to be found here, but we seek encouragement and hope, knowing what the Savior is asking for us. Us as a corporate body and us as individual members of that body. So would you guide us this morning as we consider these familiar words from our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Few things reveal the nature and character of one's heart like prayer. If you want to know someone and know what they are like, examine their prayer life and examine how they pray, when they pray, and what they pray. That is true as well of the heart of our Savior, which makes John 17 a particularly rich and stimulating passage of Scripture. It is of this chapter that the friend of Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, wrote, There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. Another has also noted, we have before us one of the most intimate glimpses anywhere in Scripture into the mind and heart of the Lord. If you want to know the heart of Jesus Christ, you will find it in this passage. Believers have long been drawn to this passage John Knox, the uh, great reformer, had it read to him every day during his final illness. And as he made his way into glory, these were the last words he heard on earth. James Montgomery Boyce, that great preacher from a previous generation in Philadelphia, loved this passage so much he preached 17 sermons on it. That's almost one sermon for every one and a half verses. But he was um, something of a slacker compared to Thomas Manton who preached 45 sermons on these 26 verses. This passage is a rich treasure. We are attracted to it because the prayer we find here is no shallow sentiment. It is Christ revealing His eternal desires for His eternal people. And remember this, if Jesus, the Son of God, who cannot sin, who is omniscient in all that He knows, who is one with the Father in perfect unity, and cannot ask for or deviate one slightest component away from the will of the Father... If Jesus prays this, it will be accomplished. It cannot not be accomplished. So these requests are more than requests. They are more than mere wishes. They are in a real sense Christ's directives and provisions. As you consider this passage, it really breaks down into three sections. The first five verses are Jesus' prayer for himself. 
Verses 6 through 19 are Jesus' prayer for the disciples. This is the prayer that was offered on the night in which he was betrayed, right before he went to the cross. And so he was praying particularly for them. And then verses 20 to 26 are the prayer for the disciples to come. That is us. And it is that last portion that we want to look at today to learn how to pray from Jesus' prayer. And what we will find is this. We will find Jesus' prayer for us is our pattern for praying and our pattern for living. So Jesus teaches us in this passage how to pray. And in teaching us how to pray, he also teaches us how to live. As we go through this passage, Jesus requests to his Father for us, will guide how we should both live and pray. Let's begin in verse 20, where we will find that Christ prays for us. Christ prays for us. Christ prays specifically for us, even as he prays for the twelve. The majority of the prayer in John 17 is Jesus' prayer for the twelve. He, however, did not pray only for them. He also prayed for us. Notice verse 20. I do not ask for these alone. Even as the Father, or excuse me, even as Jesus the Son was concerned for the welfare of the twelve, in the same way he was concerned for the welfare of those who would follow after the twelve. So he says, but I also pray for those who also believe in me through their word. So those who would follow after the twelve also were, were required to believe in Jesus Christ. It was essential. Notice he, he says that they believe in me. They still needed to believe in Christ. They still needed to understand that only Jesus Christ will save. But, but the mechanism by which every single person who has ever believed in Jesus Christ after the twelve The mechanism for that faith is the ministry of the twelve. You are a believer in Jesus Christ if you are a believer because of the ministry of the twelve. You have either read their word in the Gospels and been converted, or you have been converted by someone who was converted by their ministry and by their ministry and by their ministry and by their ministry on down through the ages, 2,000 years, until it has reached to you. The disciples were essential. And every believer is a result of their lineage. This is also, friends, a reminder of the importance of the gospel testimony and evangelism. It's important for us to remember that people must hear, people must believe in Christ. There's only one thing that will save. There is only one person who will give hope, and that is the person, Jesus Christ. And even as Jesus is praying for us, we have a subtle reminder about the essential nature of the gospel testimony and evangelism. In fact, this is something that's going to be emphasized particularly in this portion of the prayer. He's already thinking about those who would yet believe in him, who would hear the testimony of the gospel and respond in faith. Verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe. Verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Jesus' heartbeat in this part of the prayer is for the gospel to advance and for people to come to faith in him. We are part of that lineage of the gospel that came through the disciples. And what I want you to see, what I want you to notice, what I want you to hear is that Christ had us on his mind as he went to the cross. Don't miss that. On the night of his betrayal, hours before he was nailed to the cross for my sins and for your sins, he was thinking about us. He was praying for you. You specifically, were on his mind 
as he went to the cross. It's also worth noting that Christ was praying on that day 2,000 years ago for us. Some commentators said that that's where Jesus' prayer for us began. I understand what the commentator was saying, but I think he's wrong. That's not where Jesus' prayer for us began. Jesus' prayer for us began in eternity past when the Father gave him, gave us to him. And he still prays for us. He is, we saw in Romans chapter 8, even now at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us he always lives to make intercession for us. He loves to pray for you. He is sympathetic to your need. He understands your need. And he longs to intercede on your behalf and on my behalf. So one commentator observes. The eye of Jesus scans the centuries and presses to his loving heart all his true followers as if they had all been saved even at this very moment. At that moment, he's praying for you, for me. Christ prays for us. And because Christ prays for us, be comforted. Because Christ prays for us, be comforted. The Lord knows what you need. And the Lord is powerful to give you what you need. And is gracious and loving and compassionate to give you what you need. And He is praying for what you need. And again, if He prays, the Father will and must answer what he prays. What do you need right now? What comfort do you need? What encouragement do you need? What hope do you need? What exhortation do you need? What rebuke do you need? What correction do you need? What instruction do you need? He is praying for you. And then he is weaving the circumstances of your life such that He will give you exactly what you need in every moment. Be comforted. He is praying for you. Many years ago, I had a friend who struggled in the area of prayer and he would often lament to me, the heavens seem like brass. That is... It seems like my, my prayers can't get up to heaven and through heaven and into heaven. It seems as if the Lord does not hear, the Lord does not answer, the Lord does not care. Friends, the heavens may seem silent, but He is praying for you. He did then, He does now. Because Christ prays for us, be comforted. Because Christ prays for us, pray for each other. You know, there's often very little that we can do tangibly for one another when we're in need. We can't bear the pain of grief for each other. We can't give the gift of sleep. We can't substitute ourselves for someone who is ill in a hospital bed. But we can pray. And we can intercede. And we find this in the example of the Apostle Paul repeatedly in his letters of how he not only longs to pray, but he does pray. Consider just one example, Romans chapter 1. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, verse 9, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Always, regularly, consistently, unceasingly praying for them. Oh, brothers, we need prayer. And we need to pray. And we need to pray for one another. 
So we can follow the example of Jesus who on the night in which he prepared to go to the cross, he prayed for us. Because Jesus Christ prays for us, pray the prayers that Christ prays for us. We learn to pray by listening to and hearing what he prays. And if you want to be effective in your praying for others, you can follow his pattern and pray what he prays for others in this body. Because Christ prays for us, Pray for the salvation of those who have not yet believed. Isn't it striking that even as the cross drew near, Christ was praying for those who needed the message of the cross and the provision of the cross. And so he's praying for those who do not yet believe that they would come to believe. That's a fitting fitting prayer for us as well. That we might pray, that we might speak, or that someone else might speak, that those whom we love will hear the message of the gospel and respond in faith. Christ prays for us. Secondly, Christ prays for our union with one another. Christ prays for our union with one another. And along with that, Christ prays that we would be one. That is, that we would be unified. And as you, as you as you read this discourse, this actually begins in John 13. John 13, 14, 15, 16 are Jesus' teaching in the upper room. John 17 is his prayer after his teaching in the upper room. And all through these chapters, chapters 13 to 17, there is this emphasis on the unity of the body of Christ and the one anothering and the caring of one another and particularly the loving of one another. In fact, we see this Earlier in this prayer, 1711, I am no longer in the world. Here he's praying for the 12. Yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Would you protect their unity? Would you keep them together with one another? And we find that in this prayer request in verse 21 as well. Notice he says, that they may all be one. There he's again speaking about us who follow after the twelve, that all of us may be one. And the emphasis is on all. It's all-inclusive. Christ's desire is for every believer to know this oneness and know and experience this unity. When Jesus says that they may all be one, what does he mean by that? Well, one thing to notice, and you can't really see it in your English text, but in the Greek text, the words all and one are side by side. We might translate it literally this way, so that all one they are. And he's trying to get us to see the emphasis on our unity that while there is a diversity of people, there is a oneness to the body of Christ. There is a unified great mass of believers all throughout history that have been tied together into one massive corporate body of Christ and church. Notice also this, that Jesus is not asking the Father to make them feel like they are one. I don't know about you, but often we don't feel like we're one, do we? We have different ideas and we have different perspectives and we have different longings. And even in small microcosms of the unity of the body, even between husband and wife who believe, it's not always, it doesn't always feel unified, does it? You can say, you can mumble an amen, not too loudly if you're sitting next to your spouse, I guess. It's true, we don't always feel like one. But friends, our feelings don't change the reality of what we are. We are one. And he is praying that we would be preserved in that unity. He says something, excuse me, uh, Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 4. He reminds us of our unity. Ephesians 4 verse 4. There is one body and one spirit 
Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Everybody the same, everybody unified, everybody one. These are a reality. We are one. We are unified. Jesus is not asking, make them feel like they're one. Jesus is saying, Lord, would you give me this body of believers that you have promised me and would you make them that one body? And the Father answers, yes. And this is what he has done. We are one. Now, because we are one, one of the implications is we need to live as if we are one. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We preserve the unity. We don't make the unity. Christ and the Father have made us one and we simply live out that oneness. So Christ prays that we as an entire body, not just this body, but every believer, not just in Granbury, not just in Texas, but in all throughout the world and in all ages throughout the world for all time, we have been unified as one. Secondly, Christ prays that we would be one as an expression of the Trinity's oneness. Three times, Jesus prays for the oneness and the unity of believers as a reflection of the oneness that is in the Trinity. Notice this, verse 21, that they may be one even That's the comparison. That's the likeness. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. So he ties us together in one flock as a reflection of the unity that is had in the Trinity. The Father's in the Son. The Son is in the Father, and in the same way, the unified body of Christ is in Father and Son. Brothers and sisters, we are included in the unity of the Trinity. Our union with the Father and the Son is patterned after their unity. It is an indissoluble unity. It is a unity with full joy. It is a unity that preserves the uniqueness of the individual entity, but unifies us in one purpose and in one love. There is a difference, of course, because the Father, Son, and Spirit have this union as part of their essence. It is their eternal identity. And our union is a spiritual union with them that has been added onto us. But the union that we have with the Godhead and with one another is patterned after that unity in heaven. We know something of Trinitarian oneness by the connections we have in the body of Christ. Let that sink in on you. That means all of the interweaving of our relationships are not insignificant. They are a powerful testimony to the unity, the cohesiveness that the Father, Son, and Spirit have in heaven. Says one commentator, that stunning truth describes the believers as those to whom the Son has given glory. That is, aspects of the very divine life that belongs to God. Astounding. That's one example, verse 21. There's a second example of how our union reflects the Trinitarian oneness. That's in verse 22. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one just as in the same way, like we are one. 
So notice here, Jesus says that he has received glory, the glory which you have given me. So the father gave glory to Jesus. It was a gift to him. The greatness of the father's glory, of divine glory is manifested in Christ. Now, what's that glory that was given to Jesus? And I think our inclination is to say, well, it's it's the majestic glory of heaven. It's his exaltedness, his his kingliness, his his enthronedness. Those things are true. I don't think that's what he's thinking about here. If you go back just four days, five days earlier on the day in which he entered Jerusalem to begin Passion Week, John chapter 12, Jesus answered the disciples and said to them, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The glory of Christ is coming now. Now's the time when it's coming. Verse 28, he's praying, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Jesus then says, verse 32 and 33, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And by, But this he was saying to indicate the kind of death which he was going to die. His glory is his death. Is that really what's on his mind in John 17? I think it is. Did you notice as we were reading this morning, verse 1? Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. Jesus' glory was his humility. Not just the humility of the advent, but Jesus' glory was the humility of the cross. And that is what he gave to us. Now, he gave it to us in a couple of senses. He gave it to us in the sense that It's the means by which we get to be with him in glory. But he also gave it to us in the sense that even as he humbled himself to provide salvation, so we humble ourselves to gain salvation. We come to him empty handed, needy, dependent, reliant. The glory that Christ shares with us is the kind of humble service by which a friend lays down his life for a friend. That's the glory that he has given us. And our humility does not sever us from the Trinity. Our humble glory is what actually unites us and takes us to the Trinity. And our humility before God when we come to salvation is the same kind of humility that exalts the Trinitarian oneness. So Christ humbled himself by following the will of the Father. And so we humble ourselves by following the will of Christ as well. There's a third example of how our unity demonstrates Trinitarian oneness. Verse 23, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that they may, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me so i'm in them and you are in me so that they may be perfected matured brought to completion brought to the end full grown if you will in unity their unity has matured And that maturing of unity reflects the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a fullness of unity in the Trinity and the mature love that each one has for the other in the Trinity. And in the same way, we will be brought to corporate maturity as we are unified and we live in unity with one another. So how do you know? Whether our church is maturing, do we reflect the unity that is consistent with the unity between Father, Son, and Spirit? 
It's not just about joining us together corporately to make things nice and easy. Though when we are unified and act unified, things do get easier. Things are more fun. Things are more gentle. But our unity is a picture of the Godhead. It reveals and glorifies the nature of God. And our unity is a gift to the church body as we become increasingly mature and complete. Christ prays for our union with one another, that we would be one, that we would be one as an expression of the Trinity's oneness, and that our oneness would be a gospel testimony to the world. Did you notice that? Twice. Verse 21, so that they, excuse me, so that the world may believe. Verse 23, so that the world may know. One thing that we are prone to forgetting, as one writer says, is that the church's unity is the foundation of its evangelism. A disunified church will not have a clear testimony for Christ. What God has done to unite us is a profound witness when combined with words of the gospel. And when we live in disunity, it gives a lie to what God has created in us as a body of believers, and it undermines and it destroys our testimony. We cannot, be un- we cannot be disunified and have a clear gospel testimony. If we're going to be bold in evangelism, clear in evangelism, effective in evangelism, it will flow out of the oneness that we have with one another. One, one difficulty about thinking about this whole aspect of our unity is it's hard to see, isn't it? For instance... You, you know that I'm united to Regine. I mean, we, we wear rings. I, I wear this ring. And you know that this ring stands for Regine. What you don't know is, yeah, he wears the ring, but are they really unified? How do you know if we are really unified? Well, you watch us. How do we relate to one another? How do we care for one another? What do we do for one another? How do we talk to one another? How do we reconcile with one another? And then you know, yes, they're unified or no, it looks like Terry needs to call the counseling hotline at the church. And in the same way, the world is watching, gang. The world's looking. The world's asking the question, why do I want what they're offering? Why would I want to embrace that? And we say, well, we're unified. We're all one. How are they going to know? They're going to know by the way we relate to one another, the way we care for one another, the way we commit to one another with common goals, the way we humbly give up personal preferences, the way we purposefully use our gifts to serve one another and intentionally build up in relationship with one another. We're engaged with one another. We care for one another. Maybe you've been thinking this week about how to increase your gospel influence in 2021. I hope you've been thinking about that. What, what, what can I do to expand Gospel opportunities in my life in 2021. Here's here's one way you can do that. One way to expand your gospel opportunities is by investing in the body and loving the body and living out the oneness that we have in the body. That becomes a testimony to the world. So Christ prays for our union because He prays for our oneness. How do we respond We respond by praying for our own oneness and unity. I hope you pray for our unity. I hope you pray for the unity of the church of Jesus Christ in general, but I hope you pray for the unity of Grace Bible Church. If there is one prayer that I've prayed for this church more than any other prayer, it's this prayer. It's the prayer that I was praying for this church years before I ever came here. And it's the prayer I've prayed by far more than anything else for this church body. Because unity is so essential 
It is, it is the hallmark of everything we do. It, everything we do in this body and outside these walls in the community flows out of our unity. And brothers and sisters, if we don't have unity, it doesn't matter what else we do. We have nothing. So pray. Pray this for the church body. And pray this for individuals and families as well. That our families would be unified. That our homes would be unified. And that the, as homes are unified, that that trickles out throughout our church body so that we are all unified. Pray. Because Christ prays for our oneness, we pray for our oneness and unity. It's easy to pray, though, isn't it? It's hard to do. So because Christ prays for our unity, we also work for unity We also work for unity. We labor for unity. We pursue unity. Remember one meeting I was in, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago with one of our other elders at the time. It was a difficult meeting. And there was um, some competing ideas about ministry and relationships and people. And um, I was kind of digging in, as I want to do on occasion, And um, I was kind of standing my ground. And the other elder took over the meeting, in a sense, and led it in a different direction. And by the end of the meeting, there was reconciliation in the room. And we prayed and walked out arm in arm. As the other elder and I debriefed after that meeting, he just looked me square in the eye and said, You were going to let them go, weren't you? You were going to let them walk out of here and never come back. I would have. And he understood the essential nature of unity. And he preserved it. It's hard work. It's hard work. It's humbling work. It takes confession and repentance, and forgiveness, and persistence, and then some more persistence, and then some endurance sprinkled with persistence. It's hard. Oh, but brothers, it's worth it. So work for unity. Because that's what Christ is praying for us. And we do that because we have as our goal... Not only honoring Christ, but we have as our goal the testimony to the world. So because Christ prays for our witness, we work for unity, for the goal of testifying to the world. We love each other because we want unbelievers to follow Christ and have what we have. So Christ prays for our union with one another and Christ prays for our union with him in eternity. He prays for our unity with him in eternity. And the first thing he will say about that, and we will notice about that, is that Christ's desire is for our union with him. Some of you wrote out some goals for 2021 last week. Some of you have made some physical goals, some spiritual goals, family goals, relationship goals, financial goals. And those goals reflect what you want. And maybe you're going to achieve some of those. You have 362 days left. Three are gone. You can't get them back. You're going to make it? (laughs) Some of you have already ditched the whole plan after three days. You have desires. You have things about the way you want the world to be in 2021. Jesus had desires too. Notice what his desire was. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. I want you to notice several things about the desire of Christ. It's not just His desire. 
It's a corporate Trinitarian desire. The desire he has for us is the overflow of what he received from the Father. So he, he's reminding the Father, you have given them to me. You gave them to me so that they might be with me. My desire for them is not inconsistent with what you wanted. It is wholly consistent with your eternal plan of redemption. This is, this is a Trinitarian desire. And that desire, I want you to also notice, is that we would be with Him. That they be with me. We were created for relationship with Him. When did that start? Genesis 1, 26 and following. With the creation of man made in His image and likeness. By chapter 3, that plan has a significant problem attached to it, doesn't it? With the intrusion of sin. And so in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God with us. He came to be with us, to restore relationship. And his ministry with the disciples, he says in Mark chapter 3, is that he calls them so that he, so that they would be with him. And the return of Jesus Christ, when he comes again, is to take us to be with him. When he says in Revelation chapter 22, I am coming. I am coming. Behold, I am coming quickly. He doesn't just mean I'm coming. He says, I am coming to get you, to take you to be with me eternally. It's not just that he's coming, but he is coming to complete the oneness that we have been designed to have with him forever. The point of our being with him is so that we can enjoy fellowship with him says Michael Reeves in his outstanding book, Rejoicing in Christ, the great benefit of union with Christ is Christ. The marriage is made so that we may know and enjoy Him. Union with Him is the foundation, the beginning. Communion with Him is the goal. Our desire is not just to be in heaven, but our desire is to be in heaven with Him. That's the goal. And let me just insert here. If you have a concept of heaven without Jesus, you may very well not be a Christian. Because the goal of heaven is not gold streets. That's just pavement. The goal of heaven is Christ. When we get to heaven, will we be with one another? Yes. Will we serve one another? Yes, that's Revelation 22. But the goal is that we get to be with the Trinitarian Godhead and Jesus our Savior. And if you don't want Him in heaven then brothers and sisters, you don't want him on earth either. And brothers and sisters, if you don't want him on earth, your soul is in a disastrous place. And what you need is to repent. To repent of your sin and specifically to repent of the sin of not wanting him and ask him to forgive you and to give you a desire for him so that you can live with him now And in eternity. If you're not a Christian this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. I urge you. I exhort you. I compel you. To follow hard after him. Because he is the goal. He died to get us to him. This is. This is astoundingly profound. Says one writer. It's not difficult to understand believers wanting to be with Him. 
it staggers the imagination to realize that he wants them to be with him. I say all the time, I married up, way up. And it amazes me that Regine not only married me, but she even gave me a second look. Oh, friends, that's infinitely more in our relationship with God. He, he wants us. He died for us so that we might be with him. Christ's desire is for a union with him. Christ's desire is for a union with him to complete his sending. Notice verses 25 and 26. He makes this appeal based on the righteousness of the father. Oh, righteous father, he asks in accord with your righteousness and in accord with your justice, the justice which he would pour out against Christ and the justice that he would grant to us who believe in Christ, who became righteousness and justice for us. On that basis, he makes this appeal. The world has not known you, yet I've known you. And these have known that you sent me and I've made your name known to them and I will make it known why so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I want the outflowing of our Trinitarian love to reach out into those who would believe in me. That love that is an eternal commitment between Father and Son. He wants us to realize and know. And notice the very last phrase in verse 26. I in them. This is the end of His coming to earth. This was the purpose of His coming. To fill us with the Trinitarian love. And to indwell us. We, we, we will live with him. In eternity. But even now he already is within us. Loving us. Directing us. Guiding us. Securing us. Keeping us. And this love is not only within us individually. But it's also within us corporately. As one massive body of Christ. This revelation of His glory is the completion of God's purposes. Says one writer, Sinclair Ferguson, Christ sees His covenant bond with His people to be so strong that He regards them in some sense as one with Himself. Listen to this. Consequently, He considers Himself to be incomplete without us. And so he lives in heaven, not only for himself in glory, but for us in order to bring us there. The knowledge of this brings a sense of refreshment and joy and thrill to believers now. He wants us. And because Christ prays for our union with him, pray for heaven to come. It is not accidental That when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he pray, he teaches them first to exalt the Father, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's, that's worship, that's delight, that's praising God. What's the first request that comes after that? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we are Not very inclined to pray that prayer because we are too attached to earth and not nearly attached enough to heaven. And 2020 has revealed how so many are so attached to this earth and they are fearful of what they are losing here. Oh, friends, pray for the heaven to come. And because Christ prays for our union with Him, cultivate a longing for Christ in in heaven. Cultivate a longing for Him. Cultivate a yearning and a desire for Him. 
Long for Him more than you long for anything else. And when that longing captivates your heart, it will also transform your life now. And then, because Christ prays for our union with Him, speak the gospel to those who aren't yet going to heaven. It is a tragedy that people are dying of COVID. It is a far greater tragedy that people are dying in their sin without Christ having no desire for Him. Oh, brothers and sisters, you only have to walk about, I don't know, 20 or 25 paces off this property and you're going to find people just like that. Pray for the gospel for them. This has been a year of great discouragement Both believers and unbelievers have experienced the temptation to be discouraged. And this passage reminds us both to pray and this passage reminds us how to pray. And it reminds us of the one who is praying for us as well. Listen to the words of Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room... I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me now. So as you head into 2021, pray and take comfort in the one who prays for you. Father, we thank you for this amazing prayer. What a rich treasure it is that Christ has unfolded his nature, his desires, his longing, his truth, his provision, his care, his love in such a magnificent, magnanimous way. Thank you for the security of what we have in his love. And might the way he prayed for us and prays for us not only be our encouragement this morning, but might it also inform how we pray this year and in the coming years. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.